Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on October 24th by Pastor Rod Heppel. Today is the sixth sermon in our Fall 2021 sermon series entitled, Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. I'd like to ask you a question. How do you handle disagreements? Are you one of those people that are able to ask good questions and dialogue your way through to a better place? Or are you one of those people who get so upset and so angry that you end up shutting down the conversation and it just ends? Or maybe you're one of those people who um, just avoids it altogether and pretends it's not there. It's such a tempting option. Or are you able to still be friends with that person even after you realize you both disagree with whatever it is you're disagreeing about? There are so many different responses that we have to conflict and disagreements in our lives. Some of them are good and some of them are just not as helpful. I'm not talking about petty things in life too, you know, like whether the Maple Leafs are bigger losers than the Vancouver Canucks because they haven't won a cup since 1967, but the Canucks have never won a cup, but they only came into the league in 1970. I mean, that's just petty stuff, right? I'm talking about serious stuff in life, the things that truly cause division. When something goes sideways and there's a disagreement and there's insults or even accusations, it becomes personal and you're hurt by it. How? do we handle ourselves in those times? Today in our story in Acts, we're going to see that the apostles in the early church are having to handle one of these disagreements and is coming from within the church. So far, we've seen the resistance of the religious leaders and how they've had attack and persecution from the outside. But now this is coming from the inside. It's a complaint, but it's a complaint with an edge to it. It seems to be accusing the apostles. It At least it's directed towards them. And we know that it always hurts more when it comes from people that you love. So how would the apostles respond to this complaint that seems to be accusing them of doing something wrong? Turn with me to Acts chapter 6 and read along with me our story today. In those days when the numbers of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Well, this story starts off by saying, in those days, the number of disciples were increasing. Now, this is what we call in church ministry a good problem to have, right? I mean, your church is growing numerically and obviously with salvations as well, spiritually. But there's a problem. Whenever there's growth, there's growth pains. And what's happening here is that people are slipping through their cracks, as we say. And so often that is the case when there's church growth, but there's not the organizational structure around it to meet the need. Now, to be clear... The church is not a business, and it doesn't grow because of its structures, but it might be hindered 
because of the lack of structures. The church is a living organism. The Holy Spirit is the one who moves and works and draws people to Christ. He's the one that upon faith in Christ places us into the family of God, into the body of Christ, that we become part of the church. And then we need to be organized. Because once you're a part of something, it needs to have some level of structure or organization. It's always wishful thinking that people who go off and start their own small group think they're not going to bump up against this issue, but you do. Whenever you grow, you need to be organized. In our world today, words like organized religion or institution have a negative connotation to them. They're heard negatively. Uh, they hear inflexible, rigid, cold, dead, outdated, obsolete, uh, or even abusive. But it doesn't have to be like that. And to be honest, you need good organization. It's a whole lot better than having bad organization or chaos. But you do need to have an organization that can continue to change. And that's what we are seeing here in, in the life of this church. They're having to make changes. Change is good. Churches who don't change die. Recently, I was getting something repaired in a small shop here in town. And uh, I was very excited to be able to get this thing fixed. However, after being told three times to come back at a certain time and a certain day, and all three times it wasn't ready, and all three times the response was exactly the same, where they went looking for my item and finding it buried at the bottom of a pile of items of other people who are disappointed because it's not ready, I quickly realized the value that organization brings. And that's what's going on here in the church. God is adding to their numbers but they don't have a system in place to be able to deal with the demand. It's all being put on these 12 apostles, and they don't have enough help to meet the need. Something has to change. As the leadership principle says, change or die. So let's take a closer look at our story. It says, in those days, the number of disciples was increasing. And then it says the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So, the twelve gathered all the disciples together. All of them. The whole congregation. The church is growing fast. The twelve is referencing these twelve apostles. But they couldn't do both the teaching ministry and the practical ministry of serving the food to those who were in need. Something had to give. Now, first of all, we should notice the fact that they were doing both of those things. That this is a high value in the life of the early church that they were both the teaching of the word of God and also, you might say, taking care of the physical needs, the daily bread. I remember a story from Jean-Jean and Christy in Haiti when we were working with them uh, in their ministry called United Christians International. And by the way, as a side note, I'm recording this on Friday, and as of yet, those 17 people on a missions team that were kidnapped last weekend have not yet been released, and I just want you to pray for them. Uh, one is a Canadian, 16 are Americans, they're diverse in age from little kids up to seniors, and um, gang life down there is kind of controlling the city of Port-au-Prince, and they took these people captive looking for ransom money. So please, pray for their release. But Christy shared a story that when they first started there 20 years ago, uh, she would gather the kids together to do like a good news club underneath the trees and stuff like that, and she noticed that they couldn't even pay attention because they were starving. And she noticed one day that when she was visiting, she saw kids going to the fire pits where they cooked their food, and they were actually eating the ashes. And upon inquiring about it, she found out that they were eating the ashes because maybe something was spilt, and there was a little bit of flavor in that 
ash that they would then want to eat. That's how bad it was. And so she changed her whole plan and they started to do a feeding program. The kids would get a meal and then they would teach them the word of God. And she just found an increased ability for those kids to pay attention and absorb that spiritual truth. And so you see these two values coming together. The apostles value both, but they realize they cannot keep up with the demand for both. Teaching the word of God and feeding those who are in need. Something had to give. If they were to do one, it would be at the expense of the other. You have to understand that at this time, money was being collected. They were going out and purchasing the food that was needed. They were making a list of those who had the needs and then distributing the food to them. So there's a lot involved in this. Here's the complaint. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in this distribution of food. So who are these two groups? The Hellenistic Jews and these Hebraic Jews. Well, simply speaking, if we're just going along lines of language, the Hellenistic Jews were the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians in that community. And then the Hebraic Jews were the ones that spoke Aramaic or Hebrew, but they were also Christians, Jewish Christians. So they're all Jews. It's just that some speak the Greek language and some speak Aramaic. So really, what's the issue here? It's probably true that this complaint is just symptomatic of a bigger tension that has existed for time, a long time. The best we can understand the situation is that the Hellenistic Jews were ones who were part of the uh, diaspora, where the Jews were scattered and lived in different places and grew up and born in different places, but then some of them chose to come back to live in Jerusalem, maybe even to live out their final days there. And so these people were looked upon as not only speaking a different language, but probably had incorporated certain Greek practices that weren't in keeping with more of the pure Jewish law. It was probably seen that they had compromised a little bit by blending in with these other cultural values. And now they come back to Jerusalem and they're just seen in a slightly different light. And what's really telling is they don't speak Aramaic or Hebrew. They only speak Greek. So that's a giveaway that they're on that side of the equation. To put it in simple terms, they were probably considered second-class Israelites. They were looked upon that way by the more pure Jewish-speaking people. That was seen as being a little bit closer to the law of Moses. That's how it was given in that language of Hebrew and Aramaic. And so that was seen as being a little bit more of true religion or pure religion. So it's not hard for us to see that now that these people are one in Christ and put into the body of Christ, that some of these feelings and sentiments would still be there. What's interesting to note here is that they identify the problem, but it seems like an accusation. Um, you are the apostles. You are the ones who, who are those Hebraic Jewish Christians, and you're overlooking our widows. Is this intentional, or is it just kind of convenient? Now, this is serious stuff. I mean, this is the new church, right? They're just being established, this community of believers in Jesus, and they're enjoying fellowship and communion. They're sharing everything they have in common, and they're enjoying the teaching. And, and uh, just this wonderful spirit, like I said last week, is like camp all day, every day, right? Um, maybe not all day, but each day. Uh, and, and, and this now is uh, running the risk of being divided. It's going to be ruined because this tension is growing. Whether this is an accurate portrayal of the truth of the matter or just a perceived understanding, we don't really know. We're not given enough clues from this passage. But what we do know is that it for sure was a very real tension. 
And if it wasn't dealt with, it could split the church. So we're not exactly sure how the apostles responded to this. Were they defensive? Did they understand it right away? We don't know. But where, what we do know is where they landed. So they were the ones who were the ones supposed to be taking care of these kinds of needs. And they were failing. So they must have owned that to a certain degree. That they, it was very evident that they knew they had a problem. And that they needed to resolve the problem. That's where they landed. That's where they looked for this solution. Um, the 12 decide to gather all of the disciples together. Really interesting. And it would not be right for them to stop preaching the word of God. So they come up with this idea. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will turn over this responsibility to them. So that's their plan. And this proposal pleased the whole group. You see that there. Now, I've already you know, talked about the fact that both of these roles are important. They are needed in the life of the church. They are both spiritual. It's not that one is more spiritual than the other. The both are spiritual uh, elements of serving the body of Christ. Those who teach and those who feed, those who have physical needs. One is not greater than the other. But a question kind of arises here like, well, the apostles seem to land pretty squarely that it's not right for us to leave our teaching role. So are they putting greater emphasis on the role of teaching than they are these other ones? And I don't think that's the case. I think, quite frankly, they just were being practical. Uh, they evaluated the situation. They knew that by Jesus, they had been called to be witnesses of his resurrection. So a part of that was the teaching element, that they were called to that. Realizing they couldn't do both, they probably just determined that it would be easier and better to find others who were responsible and capable that they could pass on that responsibility to. Their conclusion seems to be that their gifts were being used in the primary area and that their time was better used for that. A friend of mine once worked for Save On Foods and he really worked his way up the ladder, so to speak, all the way up to a management position and then eventually overseeing all of the Save On Foods in Western Canada. And you know, I had, um, that man started his career pushing buggies uh, in the parking lot as a teenager. But it didn't end there, right? He, he made his way up. But I guarantee you this, that even though he made his way up to management position, as he visited those different Save On Foods across Western Canada, I bet there were times where he still took a buggy and put it away. But would have it been in the organization's best interest for him to say, you know what, I should be a better servant. I need to just push buggies. I'm going to go back to pushing buggies. I don't think so. But nor do I think that the heart of the man ever left the buggy pushing experience. I think that's what made him a good manager and someone that they could trust with all of their stores because of that servant heart. And that's what I see here with the apostles. They have been the ones that have been serving on tables. They're not saying it's not important, but they are saying that God has called them to another role. And so they need to make sure they fulfill that role, and the demand is too high to do both. And so they want to spread out the load to others. It's much like the principle we see that Moses wrestled through in Exodus chapter 18, and also again in Numbers 11. Two different situations, but both times very similar. The demand of the needs of the people was too great for Moses. And each time, God's answer for that was for Moses to uh, pass on his authority to others to share the load and spread it out. So when we look at that in the correlation to our ministry in the way in which we do church life today, I think what we see is that we have our pastoral staff that cannot see 
oversee every single area of ministry and all the needs of each of the people in the congregation. For that reason, we work with teams of people. Some of these are deacons, some of these are ministry leaders, and they help to serve the family of God, while the pastors continue to lead and to equip and to teach the word of God. So you see this principle of doing this together. Notice a few things about this plan or this process. They brought the whole congregation together. They clarify their own role. They involve the broader congregation in how the plan is going to be executed. So they gave the plan to them, but then they involve them in it. Choose seven men from among you. Now, that's really interesting language because if they're saying to that Greek-speaking population within the body of Christ, okay, uh, we realize there's a need and they are your widows and we, our widows, widows too, but they're, they're yours by family line and we want you to choose seven men from among you. It is very possible that all of these were the Hellenistic Jewish Christians that were voted in. They all have Greek names, although that doesn't prove it. Um, what is interesting to note is that one of them, Nicholas, was a convert to Judaism, which means he was actually a Gentile, and he had become a, a believer in Judaism, a convert to Judaism, and then he'd heard the message of Jesus Christ the Messiah, and now he becomes a believer in Jesus. So why do I make that point? Well, I think what it's showing here is that the church is realizing, hey, it's not just Jewish. It's Jewish with Greek-speaking Jews, but it's Jewish with Gentile converts, and they're allowing in their leadership structure for these people to take a role. What happens next? They bring those names back to the apostles. Seems like there's some kind of level of approval. And then there's this commissioning ceremony where there's the laying on of hands. Uh, why? Well, two things probably. To show God's blessing on that, and also to show that the authority that has been given to the apostles is now being placed on them to go and serve in like fashion. And so these ones who are not actually referred here to as servants or deacons, it just it mentions their function. They are going to serve. But eventually later we do know that that turns into an office of deacon. Seems to me that there's a sense here of working together and um, there's a sharing in this whole process which is key to finding the solution for everyone. Uh, it wasn't just in the hands of one group. Look what it says here. The proposal pleased the whole group. And so then they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and these other ones as well. And, you know, I just look at that and I go, man, I wish that there was always a solution to the challenges that the church faces. But you know as well as I do, it doesn't always work out that way. But what we see here in this passage, I believe, is wisdom. Wisdom that we still draw on today as to how we go about our own practice of um, choosing leaders to serve in various roles. There's uh, criteria for, for the serving at various levels, right? There's a discerning process for that. These names are put forward. There's a presenting of the names for final affirmation. And so you see that, that you know, there's something you're aiming at. There are people that are prayerfully considering names of people for those roles. And then there's this, this final laying on of hands and commissioning them for the work. And that is still... Uh, in principle, how we operate today. It's got this idea of working together. It's got this idea of check and balance that you don't just maybe too quickly uh, put someone in a position they're not ready for. So we follow these principles today. You might wonder, well, how is that followed here at Sardis Fellowship? Uh, we have a nominating committee. That's what we call a team of people who come together once a year, uh, made up of some pastors, deacons, and members at large, who prayerfully 
discern and pray about names of people who might be right to fit certain ministry uh, leadership roles, and in particular, to be deacons in our church. Then what happens is those names go back to the leadership team, and then finally it comes to the congregation for final approval. So you kind of see that, that spirit of working together, check and balance, back and forth, everyone's a part of it. Many of you will know my story here at the church. Um, I was an associate pastor for 14 years before I became the lead pastor almost three years ago. And um, you will see in the process of how a, a, a church congregation calls for a lead pastor or senior associate pastors in our context is that there's, again, this nature of togetherness and uh, discerning in prayer and seeking God. Now, some of you at the time when I was uh, preaching for my call, and by the way, it was at the time when Pastor David Lee, who had been here for 17 years as our lead pastor, was stepping away from that role to retire, but he still works, so I don't know what you call that. He's now our pastor emeritus. Uh, but at that time, the leadership team came to me and asked if I would allow my name to stand for, for the next lead pastor in our church, but of course there's a process. And, and some people thought, well, you know, Rod, you've been here 14 years, what are you preaching for a call? That kind of seems weird, right? But we set aside a day. I did preach a sermon that day. And then we had a question and answer time afterwards where you guys could come and grill me on my theology. I mean, you could kindly ask me your questions and I tried my best to answer them. And we went through that process. And then two weeks after that meeting, the congregation met for a vote. And you uh, voted me in as your next lead pastor. And what the result of that for me was it was very affirming. See, I didn't want to step into a role if I didn't know if that's what God wanted me to do. And if God wants me to do that, it's sure nice to know that the people of God have that same sense of affirmation. So I think there's something very practical about this whole process. I think it keeps the unity of the church. I think it helps people realize there's a process to serving. And the greater the level of responsibility, there needs to be a heightened level of um, process to make sure that you're ready to lead in that way. For the apostles here in the, and the early believers, they wanted to maintain the unity of the church because they want to maintain the witness of the church. And we see that in this final verse. I don't have it on a slide for you, but in the final verse 7 it says, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And so we see this. The word, the, the testimony of the church is kept intact, and they're able to have this witness. But as I said earlier, it doesn't always look that way, does it? I mean, within the life of the church, there are complaints and accusations. There's conflicts. There's disagreements. There's misunderstandings. There's hurts. And it has always been that way, a part of the life of church, because we're people and fallen people who have to continually submit our lives to Jesus. There is a lot written in the New Testament testament about how we are to treat each other and especially as we go through tensions and disagreements and I think it's timely for us today to just stop for a moment as we've been looking at the early church and how they wrestled through a, a moment of tension which could have created like greater division in their church and I think that we need to stop and and consider the fact that COVID-19 is doing that in the life of our own church it's especially difficult when there isn't a proposal that pleases the whole group COVID has brought about tensions and divisions in our broader culture and society, but it's also right here amongst us as the church, the church at large and our own church family, Sardis Fellowship. There is division in the church over the government's approach to mitigate 
the effects of COVID-19 through vaccines and mass mandates. And some of us are very upset on both sides of this issue. Some of us feel it's wrong for the government to be forcing people to take the vaccine, and some of us feel it's wrong for us to not to comply with what the government is asking us to do in keeping with their plan. Some of us are scared of what might happen if we take the vaccine, and some of us are scared what might happen if we don't take the vaccine. Some of us are hurt because we will lose our jobs if we don't take the vaccine, and some of us are hurt that you wouldn't choose to take the vaccine to protect others. I'm using the us and we language here because I'm talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ, us. Those who by the Spirit of God have come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and been placed into the body of Christ, into fellowship together. It's, it's who we are. It's us. And this is where that tension lies. So the questions I'm asking here today is what do we do? What is your calling in this? And what is Jesus asking of us? Today, I invite you to at least consider your part in how you talk about this issue with each other. If we were all on the same page, we would not have the tension we have, and we would not be divided, and we would not be having this conversation and having to be reminded about how Jesus wants us to treat one another. But the fact is, it's here. I'd like to ask you a question. How do you handle disagreements? Are you one of those people who are able to ask questions and dialogue your way through to a better place? Or are you one of those people who dig your heels in, get all worked up, and shut down the conversation so you can't have it anymore? Or are you one of those who want to avoid it altogether and pretend it's not there? Are you able to still be friends even if the person doesn't agree with you? The unity and the witness of the church is threat threatened when we no longer can treat each other as Christ has asked us to. To sit on either side, throwing stones from one side to the other side, back and forth, is not a way forward. Nor is not caring about your brother and sister in Christ who is on the other side of this issue. As a personal reflection this last week for myself, because I have to find that I need to keep my own attitude and heart in check, centered in Christ, I, I took a, a read on the 59 different one another statements that are in the New Testament. If you want that list, George Carl, pardon me, Carl George has put this list together and summarized it. I'm just going to read some of the ones that I was focusing on this week. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Honor one another above yourselves and clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Four times that one mentioned. Carry each other's burdens. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Be at peace with each other and live in harmony with one another. Three times. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Three times. Serve one another in love. Twice. Forgiving one another, twice. Stop passing judgment on one another and accept one another just as Christ accepted you, five times in the New Testament. Encourage each other, five times. And the one that has the most, love one another, 16 times. But I'll share one more with you, because this is also one of the one another's in the New Testament. 
says, teach and admonish one another. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And it is my hope that that's what I'm doing in this message today as you hear it. There were Hebraic Jews who were brothers and sisters. Let me rephrase that. There were Hebraic Hebraic Jewish brothers and sisters, and there were Hellenistic Jewish brothers and sisters, but there was only one body. There are vaccinated brothers and sisters, and there are non-vaccinated brothers and sisters, but there is only one body of Christ. I am a vaccinated brother in Christ who is called to be your lead shepherd at this time. And I'm not sure if that puts me in the Hebraic camp or in the Hellenistic camp. But my calling is to lead by example in loving one another as Christ has loved each of us. And I hope that that approach is worthy of your respect. What am I then calling our church to today? I'm calling you to live out two passages of scripture. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3 in particular. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's my belief that if we approach conversations like this with each other, humble and gentle, patient and loving, that we will have a greater chance of coming to a better understanding while keeping the peace of Christ. Galatians 6 also speaks to us as believers, as the family of God, and it says, let us not become weary in doing good. That alone is important right there, because it can become weary. Do not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. That's my challenge for you. I would like to pray for us, and then I have three questions for you to to consider this week. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, for such a time as this, we need Jesus real in our lives to help us keep the unity of this body of believers. It's exceedingly difficult times. We need the empowerment of your spirit to protect us from ourselves when we want to give our piece of wisdom when we do it in such a way that is not in keeping with your spirit, it doesn't have the result that we intend it to. So guide us by your spirit that we might be these kinds of people who live out the one another, who make every effort to keep the unity of Jesus Christ that we share in him. And so I pray that on our congregation, on the church around the world, in Jesus' name, amen. So here are my reflection questions for you. They're different than discussion questions because I believe these are personal that you need to wrestle through. One, what is my attitude towards my brother or sister in Christ who is on the other side of the vaccine issue? Two, are my conversations about COVID helping anyone? And three, will you commit to live out Ephesians 4, 1 to 3? God bless you this week. I hope to see you here next week. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.